Hey, if you think you might be lost because you got lots of new thoughts, I'll be informed. Or if you're feeling like a fool, cause you've been used just like a tool since you were born. Hey, if you're trying to get through life, then friend, I've got some great advice for not growing horns. They say that ignorance is bliss, but if you knew, then you'd be pissed, so get informed. It's time! Welcome, friends, to Getting Informed, a Leftist Lit Podcast. I am Colin Orton, he, him, and I'm joined by my co-host, Al Gropey. Al? She, hers, and we're joined by our illustrious guest... Abby Lee Hood, name them if you please. Of course. (laughs) (laughs) And they are going to be a particularly insightful guest on this episode, two-episode series... Uh, we are reading Thunder in the Mountains, the West Virginia Mine War, 1920 to 1921 by Lon Savage. And if I'm correct, you're writing a book kind of about this. Hey, that is, yeah, mostly correct. I am uh, I'm doing a book for the West Virginia University Press. I'm very grateful that they decided to give me a book deal. That's kind of amazing to me. Um, and... I'm going to be doing it about progressive rednecks in history. So there will be a lot of different time periods, like the Underground Railroad, and there will be uh, trans cowboys, and there will be the Oak Ridge Strikers, which uh, if you don't know about the A-bomb and the history of it being built in rural Tennessee, you should look it up. But there's also going to be a lot of stuff about the mine wars, too. So all that and more. Delicious. That's such a that's such an underrepresented bit of history, too, um, especially the like it, intersectionality of communities on the fringes of our society, which in, in the case of American history tended to be literally on the fringes, like on the frontier. Um, like one of my favorite fun facts about that is that uh, buckaroo is just an anglicized version of the Spanish word vaquero, literally meaning cowboy, because... I know that. That is so cool. Because m- like most cowboys were either black or Latino. Mm-hmm. Because on the frontier, there aren't, you know, there isn't society to crush you. (laughs) That's true. From what I understand, particularly with the, I wouldn't say influx or popularity. I don't think those words are exactly, have the right connotation. But the maybe prevalence of transgender and other LGBTQ cowboys. um, And like you were saying, um, you know, different uh, cowboys of color, those were some of the jobs that they could find. And also I think it had to do with the fact that you were moving into, uh, we were colonizers, right? So we were colonizing areas that were already um, inhabited by Native Americans and people of color. And particularly in the Southwest, you moved into regions where those populations already existed. So like, of course they were going, you know, going to be sort of, I don't know. I don't want to say forced. I don't want to talk out of my ass here, but I know there were a lot of trans cowboys and I know there were a lot of uh, Native American, black and uh, Mexican American or Mexican cowboys. And I look forward to researching that a lot more. I mean, hell, look at Bass Reeves. Uh, The inspiration for the Lone Ranger uh, was an escaped slave who lived with Native Americans for many years after uh, knocking out uh, the man who owned him uh, over a game of cards. And then, I'm right, not to romanticize this stuff. Like my first reaction is like, that's so badass, and it is. But at the same time, like I put up a TikTok yesterday about Blair Mountain, which I don't want to get ahead of ourselves. I know we're going to talk about this, but a lot of people were coming from uh, like Ludlow, uh, Colorado, who obviously had experienced great violence at the hands of coal companies, and 
I didn't quite know how to react to that stuff because I wanted to be like, wow, that's so cool. Like you're descendants of these people, but it's not cool. So it's, I'm trying to show enthusiasm without like romanticizing what these people had to go through. And that's, that is such a, a, a great line to draw too, because while it is sort of important to teach the virtues of resistance, you know, it, it's not cool to romanticize that sort of hideous violence. You're absolutely right. Like, I, you know, I, I feel that because when I first saw Sid Hatfield's birthday in this, my thought was Taurus King. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely would have kicked my ass for even thinking that. But Sid Hatfield, um, yeah, I feel it. And also when it comes to talking out of your ass, like we usually publish like retractions in the description of these for things that we say wrong. So don't worry about it too much. Am I, by the way, am I allowed to cuss? Absolutely. Constantly. Because I was constantly say, I don't fuck up too bad. I have the worst fucking potty mouth, and I just I try. I'm like, how much do I got to rein it in, depending on where I'm at? Because <laughs> our audience is uh, truly a grotesque group of people. So like, <laughs> he it's, says that with love, with love. Yeah, I took it as a compliment. I was like, yes, one, uh, one mutant yeah. to another. Like, <laughs> yes, one like leftist goblin creature. Uh, how I often often feel that way, especially with other journalists. I'm just kind of like, oh, hello, everyone. Like, I'm here, and you are there. Leftist degenerate. I myself call myself a femlin. Have you seen on TikTok? <laughs> Love that. I have not seen that. i got to look up that hashtag because I want to see some TikToks about that. Hell yes. Well, should we just jump right into it? I do have a brief uh, oh, news couple segment. of news articles, which I only have like four and they tie in. I, I tailored them today because we have a special guest. So I, 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 I tailored them. I'm so proud of you. Do you want me to set a timer or should I trust you? It's, it's four news articles. All right, go ahead. NPR now because we're doing news. <laughs> Welcome to NPR. I'm Ira Glass. Anyway, go ahead. Um, so the, uh, the, the Associated Press in Gaza had their building destroyed by the IDF, uh, which the IDF does this really cool thing. And by cool, I mean bad. When uh, they blow up a building, wherever a bomb lands, there was a, uh, a Hamas base. And so basically the IDF asked, why did you destroy our building? And, or I'm sorry, uh, the, the, the AP asked, why was the media building destroyed? And the IDF uh, basically said, well, th- there were Hamas insurgents inside. Why were you in a building with Hamas insurgents? Um, which is a similar tactic used by the United States to justify drone striking basically every building. Uh, oh, no, that hospital had an, uh, an insurgent in it. Trust us. I feel like what we're going to... Some of the things we're going to talk about today share the common thread of being wiped from history books. Like, I feel like Americans are just so dumb when it comes to understanding anything about the Israel-Palestinian conflict. Or that conflict is not even the right word, right? Because, like, murdering children is not uh, a conflict. That's just genocide. So, anyway, hashtag free Palestine. Um, Just so in case it's not clear where I stand on that. (laughs) Absolutely. And uh, I was... I learned this while I was at a big uh, Free Palestine rally yesterday in New York, uh, which was very cool to see. But I learned that since 2012, the NYPD trains with the IDF and has a base in Israel. Jesus fucking Christ. As does, this, uh, as does ICE, the CIA, and the FBI. And the reason that this ties in is because, uh, as we saw earlier this year in January... 
So we see a lot in this book of mercenaries being used as private police. We don't see that much anymore because it's just police police doing that now. Um, the relationship between corporate oligarchs and the, uh, the state has become much more formalized. And so the NYPD in, in this city fills the role of the Baldwin Feltz detectives. Um, there was some videos from January of this year of striking food, uh, food plant workers in the Bronx being rushed by NYPD officers for blocking a street. That's their favorite one. Um, but yeah, it's just really cool uh, to see, you know, the NYPD show up to a free Palestine rally when they actively train with the IDF. I'm not surprised, <laughs> but <laughs> still disgusting. That's kind of the vibe of this podcast a lot of the time. <laughs> I'm not I'm, shocked. <laughs> I'm not shocked. I'm just disappointed. <laughs> Speaking of cops, Bessemer, Alabama. Uh, you remember uh, when off-duty police were hired by Amazon as private security? How could I forget? And I saw this article, Abby, because you actually tweeted about it. Those same off-duty cops, the private security used by uh, Amazon had keys to the box. That box. What? Who? Go yeah. for it, Abby. You're the journalist. No, no, no. I, you know, I will say, I don't know as much about this as my good friend. Well, I don't want to say good friend. We're Twitter mutuals. Anyway. <laughs> Kim Kelly is a great journalist and she's been covering the unionization efforts at Bessemer and has gone, have, has gone down to Bessemer several times. Um, and I believe it may have been her that I retweeted that from, but when I saw that, it just blew my mind because it recalled to me something I've written a little bit about, which is the battle of Athens, different time period. It was right after world war two. And there was a, um, corrupt government put in place in Athens, Tennessee, and the sheriff who was running for reelection had the ballot box at his reelection. And it just reminded me so much of that, that there were like police in charge of Amazon's ballot box. It was the same kind of thing. And it just, it's disturbing and disgusting. And that, that measure was, that unionizing vote was uh, defeated 1700 and change to 700 and change. So it was really crushed, but Amazon's cops had keys to the ballot box. That, yeah, it was crushed, but was it? But was it? it? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So that's basically our new segment. Um, it's just our police are trained by armies that are committing genocide overseas and Foucault's boomerang is hurtling back towards us as we speak. And those same cops are the flunkies and enforcers of the billionaire class. What else is new? The only good cop in this story is Sid Hatfield and a cab all the way, but like Sid Hatfield was a stellar individual and it's interesting to me that like, because he was a good cop, he was considered corrupt, right? Like, cause he still operated in a corrupt system. And so. And one of the really interesting things is that he wasn't in a like police force, police force. He was an elected constable. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He wasn't exactly like a, a sheriff or a, you know, warden of the wild west that was like walking around enforcing things. And he was also discriminated, not discriminate, but he chose how to enforce what he was in charge of. Enforcing. Boy, howdy. <laughs> anyway, I'm jumping ahead of ourselves. I know. I'm sorry. 
No, well, I, I almost wanted to just jump in with the quotes that I gathered of like those cool stories about him like being a good dude to the people he cared about. Like only good is, cop. That is essentially where we should begin because this this story, at least the first half of Thunder in the Mountains, really is the story of Sid Hatfield because mm-hmm. it is Sid Hatfield's death that ignites what will become Blair Mountain. Mm-hmm. I'm really, uh, oh, I'm sorry, Al, go ahead. No, go ahead. I was just going to say, I'm really glad that we picked this one because I, I had done a lot of reading, interviewing, and writing about Blair Mountain, but not the total mind wars that came before and Sid Hatfield. I knew he was a major player in this. I knew that he was murdered or quote-unquote shot down like a dog on the steps of the courthouse. But this book was really the deepest dive I'd taken into his life. And I just found that fascinating because, yes, the miners had been organizing and militantly so. But like you said, you know, Sid Hatfield and Ed Chambers' murder was really what sort of was the spark uh, that. The catalyst for this march from Lens Creek Valley to Mingo County, Um, which, yeah, the book begins in media res with all of these miners a union folk gathering at Lens Creek Valley and then hops back and tells the story from the beginning in quotes from the beginning of Sid Hatfield's life and him watching the developing tensions among union versus non-union miners. But if it's all right, there's a couple uh, facts and details from the foreword and the introduction that really well set up just exactly how horrible it was to be a West Virginia miner specifically. So I'm going to pull out a couple of those. First of all, it was important to understand that while coal was essential, it was abundant. The four largest coal companies in the United States controlled less than 6% of the market, and West Virginia's four largest coal companies only accounted for less than 14% of state production. But West Virginia itself was at a complete disadvantage, both because it was so far from major markets that were on bodies of water while other competing mines were closer, and since two major costs of producing coal were transporting it and the cost of mining it, it was always the miners' wages that were under, quote, constant downward pressure. Plus, by the 1920s, when this book began, coal was already losing out to other energy sources, uh, only rising 1% in usage compared to 662% of crude petroleum and 2,589% of natural gases. Uh, Thus, the violence in West Virginia was symptomatic both of a sharp, short-run downturn in the coal industry and the onset of long-term stagnation. Colin, your pinky is raised. And to make matters worse, there had been, just before this, a huge coal boom during World War I, because essentially the war machines of both sides ran on coal. And so coal miners had seen uh, pay raises and essentially constant work. They, uh, like the mines always needed more people in them. And so if you weren't a soldier, you could always find work in the coal mines. And after the war, companies slashed wages across the board and tried to fire everyone because the market just shrank by an enormous margin. And so that in conjunction with Uh, the decline of coal generally made for an even sharper, much more noticeable decline. And it's like market market declines can kind of go unnoticed by a lot of people, but when they're that sharp and result in that many people being unemployed, that's when things start to get really uh, unsettled. I thought it was interesting how West Virginia in particular was also 
sort of the worst of the worst when it came to working conditions and living conditions. So I wrote down what I thought was a pretty interesting statistic, which was that um, 80% of West Virginia miners lived in company towns uh, versus 9% in states like Indiana and Illinois. So you had the majority of people who were at best, you might call them indentured servants. I mean, many of them had been shipped from countries in Europe and promised on posters like the American dream. Then they get off the boat at Ellis Island and they're shipped on a train down to these mines and you know, the, the coal company gives you a house and they give you a piece of land, but you have to pay them rent and you get paid in script. So that was, you know, ubiquitous across the country, but particularly in West Virginia, it seems like those sort of like abuses were really rampant and a lot worse. And it just compounds the tensions of, Colin, how fucking dare you? (laughs) It compounds the tensions not only into employee versus employer, but tenant versus landlord and the consumer versus the goods and services provider. And when you waste your entire life on the quote unquote goodwill of your employer, that's not, that's not, that's not healthy. That's not safe. It was essentially corporate feudalism. Yeah. I mean, oh, I'm sorry, Al. No, I was just inserting a um, a swear word. You go ahead, Abby. Oh, hey, I, but swear words are good. They're good. They they say smart people use a lot of swear. But um, it, yeah, it's like it's hard enough to organize. Like as we saw in Bessemer, it's hard enough to organize against a giant corporation from a labor perspective. But then when you also have to organize tenants versus landlords, and when you have to, it's like it just it adds so many layers of organizational need, and then two as I'm sure we'll talk about, if you join the union to do set organizing, you got evicted from your fucking house. So like, I mean, obviously I'm sure we'll, we'll talk about the battle of Matawan and why that happened. But I mean, kids and, and women and, and husbands being put out onto the streets and their shit dumped into the road. Like it's not just the labor aspect of it. It's your entire life that you're having to like beg for dignity. Shit dumped into the road day of, when, when you get fired, the detectives show up to your house with rifles same day. Yeah. And detectives, end of quote. I know, detectives. Okay, sure, they're all, would be so ashamed. They're all fucking retired cops. All of the detectives who uh, died at the Battle of Matawan were retired police chiefs. And then, you know, obviously, one thing that stuck out to me in the introduction, and I know it's like, uh, what do you, you know, a book is going to be good when you're taking notes about the end. <laughs> um, one thing that really stuck out to me was, let me look at my exact note that I wrote, was that middle-class West Virginian, and I called them liberals. The book did not call them liberals. That's my framing. But middle-class West Virginia liberals, like businessmen, like, uh, you know, the clergy or the people who own local hotels and businesses, um, they were really opposed to the militant tactics and to socialism. And it's just, it's interesting to me that not only were the Baldwin Feltz agents like retired cops, but that the militias that the coal company later hired were almost completely what you might call middle-class liberals. The law and order society. Oh my God. Every time I hear that phrase, it's just, but, uh, oh, and one more thing. Uh, People forget that Southern West Virginia's population quadrupled between 1890 and 1920, primarily because of these coal field communities like Logan, McDowell, and Mingo being built around and then suddenly dry, left with nothing to support their communities. But uh, so shall we get into the life of Sid Hatfield? Let's do it. I love this guy. Let's do it. 
Sid Hatfield, Taurus King, born May 17th, 1893 on the Tug River. Uh, he watched the town grow up around him, grew up with the miners, always knew he'd be one. Uh, probably didn't finish school, although there are records of him being schooled, uh, but immediately went out into the mines. Soon he was a skilled worker. Oh, Colin? Um, he also, the Hatfield family of the famous Hatfield and McCoy War, uh, the Hatfield family were essentially a political dynasty in West Virginia at the time. They were wealthier than most and had a long and well-connected political history in Mingo County. So he, he came from a pretty good family as far as Mingo is concerned. I thought it was funny that it said that he had some of the Hatfield meanness in him. In, the, <laughs> in Tennessee, where I live in East Tennessee, there's this little uh, backwoods, uh, no electricity lodge. It's my favorite camping place in the world. There's a Hatfield buried there. And we're not sure, but the conjecture is that he probably wanted to escape the Hatfield and McCoy drama. And that's why he came to that area. So he's buried in a completely different place in a completely different state, but incredible he was also known as smiling sid and two gun sid which (laughs) which you better believe some of the media tried to turn against him when he was caught bringing guns into a courthouse but that's for later Uh, he was elect- appointed Madawan police chief by Mayor C.C. Testerman, who he was, it doesn't say friends with, but close to, certainly in conjunction with. And uh, he didn't really start to get involved in the union matters until John C. Lewis, president of the UMWA, United uh, Union Minor Workers of America, started this union campaign into West Virginia in January 30th in 1920. But Sid was already well-loved by the miners. Everyone knew he was a total bro. Uh, On page 15, Sid wore his badge and gun, but no uniform, and enforced the law in a way that could only please the miners. It talks about him just bringing drunks home instead of arresting them, breaking up fights instead of charging people. You mean that he, if he had been the guy who had gone to that Wendy's with the drunk gentleman in his car, he wouldn't have killed him? I know! An American cop? Imagine community policing. Imagine uh, if the cops are just some guy that you know instead of uh, an unhinged psycho from Long Island. Sid is literally the definition of just some guy. (laughs) That's who he is. He was just some guy. A good good one, but anyway. (laughs) Some heavily armed guy. (laughs) Listen. If I had maybe been like... AMAB, like if I had been born a boy during that time, I might have been very similar, like just kind of goofy, kind of bro-y, pistol in my holster all the time. Like I just really identify with this guy because I want to be him so bad. Again, it borders into the romanticizing and I'm not trying to do that, but I just, I really appreciate what he stood for. And I would like to think I would be a little bit like him if I had been born. I would argue that the book does romanticize him a bit. Like It does. it's all detail, but he is portrayed as handsome, as well-loved, as, like, just being the people's bro, if you will. And when he marries the mayor's wife, they do kind of just, like, ooh, like, they don't, they don't ramp over it entirely, but it's very much, like, <laughs> fine. Like, it's fine that he married the dead mayor's wife. Like, it's fine. This, this show is written like an HBO series. In the way that, like, I literally could picture it shot for shot as it describes the scenes. Mm -hmm. 
oh, just the, the, the descriptions, so illustrative, like so beautiful. Uh, but that's just testament to how good of a book it is to read. This is a really good book to and read. And it flies by. Mm-hmm. Like yeah, a knife through butter. I was worried, you know, I was like, oh, a history book, it could be a little bit dense and, and hard reading, but it was very, very good. I mean, I, I said, well, I'll read half of it today and half of it tomorrow. Mm-mm, I did it all in one go. <laughs> good on you. I read to chapter 12, so please have mercy on me. <laughs> Same. That's, where I, that's what I mean. That's where I stopped. Ah. Yeah, yeah, that's where we, that was the agreed stopping point. That was what you told me. That was my homework, so that's what I did. Colin gives me homework, too. <laughs> uh, but let's uh, do it. Okay, so the, U- the UMWA begins their union campaign into West Virginia, and Sid becomes friends with Mother Jones, this famous Irish immigrant and labor activist who had been performing movements all across the country, but felt particularly strong about minors' rights. She was 90 at this point. Mm. Mother Jones had been, like, for half a century at this point, organizing labor across the country. She was a waking nightmare to, like, to mine owners across the nation. Um, And I think it's really funny, because later, uh, Mother Jones... No spoilers! Uh, okay. So at one point, um, at one point during this conflict, and we haven't gotten there in the book, but, uh, in my other research, there is a man named Glasscock who gets involved. Uh, and mother Jones, whenever she, uh, shouts about him, she just says, and I'm a lady, so I won't say his name, but like, (laughs) just like it's the man's name. I don't know whether he's a good or bad character, but (laughs) I love this story in the beginning where, um, I I don't want to say Gatlin Gunn. Or I want to make sure I get right. Mother Jones faced down a machine gun at Cabin Creek and dared the dude to shoot her. And of course he didn't. Um, but I just can't imagine like this. I don't want to say little old lady because I don't want to portray her as frail because she's not. But she's in front of this <laughs> machine gun and she's like, "Come on, fucking do it, man! I know you won't. Fuck you!" And then she's just she's she's also a badass. I can only hope to one day be described as a waking nightmare. You know, <laughs> like. I just want to be a terror to society. But anyway. The kind of bravery required, like, Abby, you were talking about how, you know, uh, uh, walking around with a pistol on your hip in the 20s. You couldn't not walk around with a pistol on your hip. It was actively dumb to not, like... (laughs) It was like the Wild West of the eastern seaboard, basically, that, you know, Matawan and the surrounding area might as well... And based on, uh, when we get into these later battles, which I'm sure we'll talk about, it really felt like the Wild West, like men facing down each other in the streets and like, you know, reaching for their guns. It, it feels like something out of a Western movie. Mm-hmm. Go for it. Your mouth was open. Oh no, I was just breathing. <laughs> How dare you? Um, but absolutely agree. When we get into some of the guerrilla warfare and the, like the three days battle, whoo it made me want to start writing a play, honestly, about <laughs> like- yeah, you do? Let's do it. Let's co-op on this. <laughs> but just about what it would have been like to live there. But it was already, even before the gunfighting started, there were people being evicted from their homes constantly. I don't remember where, but I think at one point they even mentioned, like, the wives of miners being burned alive in a black pit? That's Ludlow, Colorado. Yeah, so there were 11 children and two women who died in that pit, uh, I believe two women survived. Basically, they 
Uh, the Baldwin Feltzes, fuck those guys, as we've said. The Baldwin Feltz agents went into Ludlow after some organizational efforts. I don't know the entire history. And they burned this minor camp to the ground because they had been evicted and they were living in tent colonies. So it was like salt on the wound. Not only had they been evicted, they were living in tents and they burned it to the ground. And this group of women and children tried to escape and they went into like a cellar. Um, and that's where they burned to death. And that's the, when they're talking about mother Jones looking down into the black pit, that's what they're talking about. Woody Guthrie also wrote a song about that event as well. Ooh. Yeah. So that's why when someone commented on my TikTok, we sons of Ludlow stand in solidarity, I started bawling. Like I, I, it moved to tears because again, I I didn't want to be like, wow, that's so cool. But I just said, I'm so honored that you're here. Like on anything I made, you're a son of Ludlow. Like, welcome, please. Like I'm, I could almost mm-hmm. talk about it right now. Like just, just to think that they're still there and that they remember. Amazing. That I is mean, so powerful. It's so critical that that memory survives because this is in so many ways a cautionary tale because we can see the American right pushing for this kind of corporate feudalism today. Mm-hmm. It, it just like, the, the, the lusting over corporate power and the erosion of labor unions in the United States. Like it's a hundred years uh, to the day, a few months from now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It'll be um, at the end of August. I also realize now it's probably Ludlow, not Ludlow, but it's spelled L U D L O W. So anyways, but yeah, also okay. we're filming this on the 16th. So tomorrow is Sid Hatfield's birthday. <laughs> Woo. <laughs> We are really filming this at the, at the right time. A lot of the most important events of like the uprise of these tensions happened in May. Yeah, yeah. And then of course, Blair Mountain was in August and September. So not too long from now will be the, the uh, centennial. It really is, uh, you know, violence is kind of seasonal. Even dating back to ancient Greece, uh, the city-states would go to war with each other in the summer because you needed people, uh, you needed uh, the, the men folk at home to, uh, to plant the seeds for the farm in the spring and then to reap it in the autumn, but that you didn't really have much for them to do in the summer. So they went off and killed each other in the summer. Uh, and then, so you can see spikes in activity in May and then in like August and September, like last year, Huge mm-hmm. protest activity in May and then through the summer and then shit got really, really bad in August. When I lived in Chicago, that was always a pattern that we talked about as well. Yeah. Crazy that Mother Jones lost her house or her seamstress shop in the Chicago fire. Uh, we yeah. talked a lot about living in Chicago, but um, that was a that was a similar uh, pattern that we saw there. Although I no longer live in Chicago. Hey, I'm in the suburbs of Chicago. <laughs> I guess you can't say which suburb, but uh, or it may make you uncomfortable to say so. So I'll just say that I love Chicago. Oh, no. No oh. one knows where I live. <laughs> Good. I, I've recently moved out of Nashville, and I've tried to be very close-fisted about, like, I live in rural Tennessee, and that's all I'm telling you. It's, it's smart. OPSEC is smart, especially. I get too many death threats, so uh, I will not be. Yeah, it's like semi. It depends on what I'm putting out at the moment, you know. But certain stories, oh yeah, happens. I'll get them. I'll get every single one of them. (laughs) (laughs) I I have a dog and many weapons, so let them come. As well, you should. Okay, but is it like an attack dog or is he like a cuddly boy? Um. Well, she's not. Oh, Sadie, come here. Hey. Dog tax, dog tax. He's napping. She won't even get up. Say, 
<laughs> she's 70 pounds of coonhound and she's seven and she's lazy. So good. Perfect. As she should be. My first uh, line of defense is quite weak, I think. <laughs> <laughs> the weapons will cover what Sadie cannot. Yeah, hopefully. Uh, if it's me versus some dude that doesn't like my op-ed about uh, bluegrass, that's the one that got, anyway, it did, we don't have to talk about bluegrass? it. Bluegrass? That's the one that got it? <laughs> yeah, I wrote an op-ed about, um, oh, what's his fucking face, man? He's, has, he has a face. Uh, it's um, Ra- Walter Raleigh, Sir Walter Raleigh. He's uh, like A-plus, A-tier bastard, like helped the queen of England murder innocent women and children in Ireland and then came here to colonize. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and was like in charge of... Um, the tobacco uh, lord himself, yeah. Yeah, the lost... Col- What's the lost colony? Roanoke. Yes, thank you. He was like the governor of that. Um, yeah. So I wrote an op-ed about how a certain bluegrass organization that used to employ me should not use his imagery anymore in their marketing. And I got death threats and a lot of homophobic comments and Jesus Christ. A lot of, yeah. They said they were going to deep fake me into porn with Walter Raleigh, which what? I think is a category of fetish unto itself. Like, <laughs> yeah. The person I hate in porn with person they don't like well, is that, but person who's been dead for like 600 years. Yeah. With, with historical figure that they've maligned in my, in my perverse view. Yeah. Cat girl porn. We've taken <laughs> to a new level. Like no, shit. Oh, I'm I'm so excited for uh, when when the the Trump supporting Italian Americans do that with Christopher Columbus. That's gonna be really exciting. <laughs> when are we gonna see Kennedy porn? That's what I want to know. Oh, oh, it exists. The CIA, the CIA. There's no way they don't have it. No, not that kind. I mean, the fake kind. Call it. Probably true. With as many mistresses as he had, I'm sure. Mm. Mm. When will the CIA unlock Kennedy's sex tape? <laughs> I want it now. <laughs> JFK porn. I will not pay my taxes until the JFK porn is released. <laughs> Forget Pornhub. Forget all your, you know, advocacy for other things. Pornhub be organizing to get the JFK porn tapes, and I want them. Social oh. justice broke. Organizing for Kennedy porn woke. woke. <laughs> oh my God! We have to get back to the text. <laughs> This is, I love the way we've gotten derailed this session. This is, ooh, chef's kiss. Uh, we always get derailed. It is not you, Abby. Don't worry about that. And do not apologize. This is the best uh, railroading we've had in a long time. I'm trying to find a segue, but there really isn't one. Um, well, not from porn. Dicks. Oh, yes. Speaking of dicks, guys. the Baldwin Feltz detectives. Absolute uh, Should we dicks. just skip to Matawan? Uh, yeah, well, I want to touch briefly on the Yaller Dog contracts, just because this should oh, not have been yes. legal. And Mr. Uh, Lively. We should introduce Mr. Lively, very oh. active union member. Uh, boo. Uh, he technically didn't appear until after the Battle of Matawan, but I feel like we can introduce him here for, like, thematic reasons. Yeah. Uh, Yaller <laughs> yeah, Dog. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Yaller Dog contracts were basically contracts that made non-union miners swear they would not quote affiliate with or assist or give aid to any labor organization under penalty of firing and eviction. Colin, why are you cackling? Because they weren't allowed to, um, they weren't allowed to help the spread of unions even by means of quote persuasion, unquote. 
Yeah, that wasn't until later when martial law, like that's eh, right. before martial law, but Damn, yeah, later. <laughs> later, they made these contracts even more strident, and that you could not even persuade anyone to join. Don't talk about unions. Yeah, they made this guy take a plaque off his wall, like a union plaque, because it had something about strikes on it. I find it. I'm. I'm so sorry to drink. I don't want to jump the gun here, but I, I find it so hilarious that you have a lot of people screaming about, don't take my guns and my First Amendment right. Like, that's always been, like, far-right, alt-right shit. Corporations are the one, the ones who went door-to-door and took people's guns. Corporations, big coal, if you will, was the one who went door-to-door and was like, give me your union fucking pamphlets, you shitheads. Like, so scared of is exactly what you're buying into. And the back of the blue types? Don't tread on me. Who's, who's going to do the treading? Brother, like really, who does the treading? Whose job is it to tread? That pay those said back the blue police officers that will those. show up your door and take your guns like they did? Surely not. God damn, it's brain rot, dude. It, it's <laughs> it ain't gonna be any liberal snowflakes taking your guns. Sorry, Abby, go ahead. Oh, I was just gonna say, I mean, one thing that isn't in this book that I think is important to at least briefly mention is that. Uh, when I spoke with Chuck Keeney, who is the descendant of Frank Keeney, who is mentioned a few times in this book. Yeah, Chuck Keeney is a wonderful professor and historian. I've interviewed him or a.k.a. bothered him many times. <laughs> <laughs> and he's always very kind to me. Um, he told me that the American Constitutional Association, which I mentioned briefly in, in this Teen Vogue article I did about Blair Mountain. So there's more details there. But um, they lobbied for generations to have this history removed from textbooks. So I just want to say that, like, yes fake rednecks and by the way you cannot be a trump voter and be a redneck it's like literal misappropriation of that term um anyway the people who are fake rednecks like yes there are a lot of things and i and i don't like them and i don't advocate for them but i will say to a certain extent when you remove this history from textbooks it is really hard to know this history and to self-educate yourself so i mean coal is there are still coal company executives on university boards like this is an ongoing campaign to erase this history and the Trump administration was uh, aggressively pro-coal, uh, insanely pro-coal, if for no other reason that for some reason these uh, crazed fascists truly believe that coal has like a part of the American identity in it. Like they've really... It does, but for us, not for them. They've tied mm-hmm. this like hardworking coal miner that they have in their heads to American history, when in reality, hardworking coal miners were taking up arms against people like them. And were afraid to use words like socialist, but most certainly were uh, socialist communists. I mean, I don't know how many would have self-identified. I know it's also difficult to, for example, get pictures of these miners at the conflict because they, you know, shot at planes that flew overhead, and and I don't blame them. It's interesting to be a member of the media and to read this book and to understand how the media really antagonized the miners and how the miners didn't want to interact with them because I feel a responsibility to kind of untangle that and like figure out what my role as a journalist is. Um, anyway, I'm there, sorry. Go ahead. Oh no, no, no. Uh, there's that fascinating bit in chapter one where, um, this journalist uh, tries to go to uh, Matawan with the, the miners and one of the miners just gently rests his hand on the 44 revolver in his, uh, in his, in the front of his trousers. And is like, we don't need no media here. Like He's smiling. And like at the end of it, it's like he extended his hand and like, yeah. Hand. Oh no, he was, he was very friendly. Like he, you know, yeah. but there was an, impl- a little bit of an implicit threat in just like the, 
we don't mean you any harm, but also like there will be violence here. And if you show up, you will cause problems for us later. And we see this a lot with the Portland protests, actually, um, with streamers and media, because a lot of the footage that gets taken by streamers and journalists winds up in court. Well, how many Ferguson protesters, specifically black men, have been murdered by or sorry, sorry, uh, died by suicide in burning vehicles under mysterious circumstances? Like four. Yeah, several of them. And also there's been a tweet going around. I'm sure you've seen it. It is a beautiful image. Um, it's a Palestinian man, and he's got the flag in one hand, and he's got a sling in the other hand, and he's, um, you know, involved in some kind of fighting or conflict in Israel. I don't know exactly what he was doing, but uh, he survived. But after that photo went viral a few years ago, apparently the IDF tried to kill him, um, or at least mm-hmm. they shot at him. So I understand why these miners kept their cards so close to their chest, particularly when it came to media, because so many of them were tried. And obviously, we, we know how Sid Hatfield's life ended. Um, and it was mm-hmm. because he was uh, propped up in the media. I think that was a big part of it. Um, he was mm-hmm. one. It's really unhinged how you see uh, the arm of the law get smashed down on these miners incredibly hard. And then when uh, corporate goons are gunning people down in the street, suddenly uh, the, the law is words on a page. Like, mm-hmm. I'm so sorry, Al, you wanted to say something? No, I was just going to give an anecdote from our protest uh, activities last summer that I, I, we weren't talking about them at the beginning of this podcast, but I feel like now we're safe enough away and I'm not going to name anyone else. But I remember when uh, I was at one of the Black Lives Matter counter protests in New York last summer at Abolition Park when it was still up. And I had half of the organizers telling me to st- stream what was going on telling me to get on my phone and like publicize it and the other half saying no they'll hunt us down we can't have this out there and it was it's just like a real world example of like how like torn we don't know how to use the media for this or at least it was when I was experiencing it but that's just me one person but I've yeah. seen people saying that we should continue wearing masks long after the pandemic particularly in in these situations perhaps if People, I'm not, I'm sure there are many smarter people who propose a lot of other solutions, but maybe if we continue to wear masks at protests, if there is police violence that break out, we can more easily film those events for documentation purposes without identifying and putting a target on people's back. Black Block is such an important tool um, as far as like street organizing. And it has been uh, for almost 80 years now. Uh, And that's something I think that people you know, we, we see the right sort of fear mongering about black block, but black block really is just to make sure that they don't get hunted down afterwards, like, or that, you know, it's harder to arrest somebody you saw doing a crime when that person looks exactly like everybody else. Interesting mm-hmm. how these miners were thinking about the exact same thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Lots of uh, parallels to be drawn. While we're on the topic of protests, etc. And I mentioned Black Lives Matter. I do want to say one thing I didn't like about this book was a constant, it was trying to emphasize how diverse the group of people that were standing against these, uh, these non-union men and these lawmen and quote unquote detectives were, but it did keep referring to black Americans as just blacks. And that didn't sit right with me. Black so, people, S, not yeah. Capital B, plural S. This book was published in 1985, but that's still a little late for that. Well, even in the introduction, though, 
because the copyright page, which I looked at, says 85, but in the introduction, he says it was first in paperback in the 70s. Doesn't excuse it. Yeah. It's perhaps a sort of understanding of why he might use that term. Yeah, a little, a little less iffy, given that this book was first written almost 50 years ago now. Jesus. In my head, I was like, yeah, 30 years ago. <laughs> it is, will always be 2000 in my mind. Uh, but let's get into the Battle of Matawan. So, for oh my long, god, oh my god, I what'd you say, Abby? I said rooting, tooting, and shooting. Absolutely, uh, I think I have like an understanding of what happened. I tried to do like a point by point. Uh, there are a lot of, of conflicting narratives, yes, and, and I like the go for it, do it, do it. I fucking go for dare it. You. No, go for it. You, well, I was just gonna mention the little Han Solo who shot first situation <laughs> that. <laughs> It develops into who but, shot Mayor Testerman and why. <laughs> okay, let's let's do this point by point. So, May nineteenth, nineteen twenty, the Battle of Matawan. Uh, Thirteen Baldwin felt. Oh, they were these detectives were in town both to evict people and because they intended to buy Sid off so that he <laughs> would allow them to bring a machine gun into Matawan. Uh, Which they but, planned on mounting on rooftops, like they planned on on establishing what are known in the business as kill zones. Charming. Uh, but he was obviously not going to be very receptive to this. But 13 Baldwin Feltz detectives headed by Al and Lee Feltz doesn't deserve the name, the bastard. <laughs> the name Al has so... He's not allowed in our club. It took me a second to get that one. Yeah, no, I vote to kick him out as well. Absolutely. Officially uh, Albert now. <laughs> he's only allowed to be Albert. But they were forcibly evicting people from their homes. Sid approached and asked for their warrant. They said that they had one, but he'd have to go back to Matawan to get it. Instead, Sid called the sheriff's department in Williamson, where he found that the detectives had no authority to be evicting these people, and asked the department to, Sid asked the department to send warrants for the arrest of these detectives on the next train, the five o'clock train coming in. This process also, like, they're not calling on cell phones. They're sprinting to the nearest telephone, making a call, and then sprinting back. Like, this is like a several-hour protracted process that's happening here, which I think is very funny. Yeah, I think some of it may have even happened by telegram. I think, like, the, yeah. the printed-off warrants he was waiting on. Maybe, anyways, but this is also the point where we were talking about those um, families who had their furniture dumped out in the rain, like day of being fired, their stuff. And one of the, when they, when the Baldwin Feltz agents arrived at the house to evict um, one family, the woman was like hanging up her washing, like her laundry. And she said, can you please wait till my husband gets home? And they were like, we don't have time for that. And they had guns and were like throwing these women and children out into the street, unpaved street, by the way. So your stuff just was mud. dirty. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And really, this was drawing a crowd. Oh, Colin, go ahead. Oh, it really reminded me of when uh, of when the Florida police uh, stormed the house of that scientist and pointed guns at her kids because she went against what the governor said about COVID. Like, it really reminded me of just like heavily armed law enforcement just waltzing into people's homes, and we still see it. Anyway. Wow, that's never happened before or since. <laughs> <laughs> hot takes. Hot takes. There's no precedent for that. Uh, Brianna Taylor certainly was not um, in that exact same situation. Really just letting themselves in. Yeah. 
Yeah. They're like vampires. You have to, you know. Yeah. I wish they were like vampires. (laughs) Solve the problems. They're well. They're like vampires, or the people they work for are. But in all of the not (laughs) good ways. Anyway. Okay. Uh, Strong agrees. Uh, So Sid had called for these Warrens to arrive on the five o'clock train. Before the five o'clock train carried the Warrens could even arrive, and this was the same train that the Baldwin Feltz detectives were planning to leave on. But by the time, before it could even arrive, the detectives had already evicted six families from their homes. Uh, When Sid approached and said he had Warrens coming for their arrest, they presented him with a warrant for his arrest. (laughs) Mayor Testerman, who, as we know, was closely aligned with Sid, shortly arrived on the scene, looked over the warrant, and basically immediately said, this is a bogus warrant, and then shots were fired. And it is unclear who shot first, but I'm pretty sure it was Feltz. From, <laughs> from essentially, like, the consensus that's uh, later in the book, Feltz draws and fires into Mayor Testerman, and then Sid Hatfield draws and fans the hammer of his revolver, emptying all six chambers into Mr. Feltz. At which point, the crowd of miners, which had been watching the evictions and arming themselves all the while, opened fire into the 13 Baldwin Feltz detectives, most of whom were killed. Mm-hmm. I like the, um, the one of the ones who... There, the stories of the Baldwin Feltz agents who survived was kind of interesting. There's like the guy who hid in the barrel for six and a half hours. Yeah. The guy who was like sitting inside the train station and looked out the window and it said he calm, he saw what was happening, saw the, you know, exchange of fire and calmly ripped up his identification and threw it away and got on the train. Like what a fucking craven coward is what that is. In all fairness, when 200 men are opening fire on your, your squad of 10 dudes, there's not a lot you can do, you know? <laughs> That's a good point. Still a coward, but a smart coward, perhaps. Yeah. <laughs> and I think the guy that hid in the barrel was only saved because he was, like, going out for cigarettes. Like, yeah. I think that's it. He, they had sent him to go get a pack of cigarettes, and so he ran behind a house and, like, hid in a wooden barrel for six and a half hours. Just, oh, shit! Like... Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, like you said, in all fairness, I guess I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to die for being a Baldwin Feltz agent. So <laughs> that you know, these guys are mercenaries. Like it is ultimately not worth the paycheck to uh, lose your life. Also, because these guys are, I don't know if uh, retired cops got uh, checks from the government at that point, but like pensions. Yeah, pensions. Thank you. My brain is not working as per usual, frankly. But like. I don't know if they had pensions in those days, but if they did, you know, these guys are still retired cops with long resumes. Like they, yeah. they're in it for the money. I just can't imagine. I know that there obviously is, con- the Baldwin Feltz later in the trial tried to say, well, Sid shot Mayor Testament because he wanted to marry Mayor Testament's wife. Listen, Sid, buddy, if I were you, it's not the choice I would have made, but hey, I'm, love is love, whatever. I, I just, but I still can't see a situation in which Sid would have ever shot Mayor Testerman. It just doesn't make sense in that situation to shoot the guy who's backing you up in, in fr- front of the other miners. In front of the other miners and 13 guys who have a warrant for your arrest that you're contesting. Also, geographically, like pretty much everyone agrees that Testerman was behind and to the side of Feltz, and he was shot in the stomach. So, in order to have shot him like that, Sid would have had to either flip his gun upside down without turning around 
or turn his back on the 13 people with a warrant for his arrest who had guns to shoot his friend. And who had demonstrated no compunction about just gunning motherfuckers down. Like... Yeah. There's no realistic scenario in which this would have happened. Abby? Well, I was going to say, I mean, Sid was not like a peaceful guy. Like, you know, as the the teenager, the teenage operator supposedly heard him say, you know, we'll kill those goddamn motherfuckers before they make it out of Madawan. Um... But I think this is one of those examples, like uh, I was listening to Behind the Bastards with uh, Robert Evans, and he did a great episode, right? Love his podcast, a huge fan. Uh, and he did an episode about John Brown, and he kind of said, his, I think his general conclusion was that John Brown was a terrorist, but that it was necessary. And yep. that's kind of how I feel about the ways in which Sid was a violent man. Like, did he shoot and kill people? Yeah. Was it probably considered guerrilla warfare or domestic terrorism? Uh, sure, but was yeah. it nece- necessary? I mean, even Frank Keeney said in the introduction, you know, we cannot lift this martial law without blood. So I think everything Sid did was justified, whether or not other people felt that way or not at the time is mm-hmm. not. But. Absolutely. The book truly doesn't shy away from describing how much violence there was. And I hate to use the term on both sides, considering how our former president used that term about recent violence. But there were attacks from union miners on non-union miners and the other way around, uh, particularly against scabs. But uh, in total, after the Battle of Matawan, which lasted about three minutes, uh, (laughs) Two miners were killed, the mayor was killed, and then seven of the 13 Baldwin Feltz detectives were killed, including both Al and Lee Feltz. Good riddance. Uh, but this made Sid the miner's hero. He was already well-loved by the community, but after this especially. However, he was also, from this point on until his death, constantly hounded by the Baldwin Feltz detectives. And when Sid uh, stood over the bleeding body of Al Feltz, he brandished the warrant for Feltz's arrest and said, now, you son of a bitch, I'll serve it on you. Um, <laughs> That's straight out of a fucking Netflix special. The, yeah, because the uh, the five o'clock train had just gotten there and he got the warrant, <laughs> threw it on him, I'll serve you now, you bitch. <laughs> oh my God, I want to see the movie Matawan, because... You can uh, see it, the camera on the ground, and then Sid leans over the camera with the warrant, like... It writes itself. It's incredible. Very Tombstone, which is one of my favorite movies of all time. Oh. All the day. Like, not only was Sid, like, a good dude, but he had style. You know? <laughs> That's panache. I appreciate that. He was, he was, in many ways, the consummate showman. Guns out, smile plastered on his face, even at his own trial for murder. Um. <laughs> oh, Lord. And we'll get into that. Uh, to touch briefly on what happened with the mayor's wife, because when we get into the trial, a lot of people were trying to spin it that he purposely uh, yes. started this fight to kill the mayor to steal his wife. It was true that uh, two weeks later, on June 1st, Sid and the late mayor's wife, Jesse, were caught in a hotel room together and arrested on charges of, quote, improper relations. Um, but I love Jesse the said that they sex were is in a the, crime. Uh, sex is a crime, as we know. Uh, Jesse said they were in the process of being married and that her own husband had told her, if anything ever happens to me, you should marry Sid. Which, like, I mean, I don't... Abby, you would have more, like, background on what gender relations maybe were in this. But I feel like that's pretty common for, like, husbands to say, hey, if anything happens to me, you need to be taken care of. Here's someone I trust. 
the way that they describe her too is as a relatively like fashionable i don't want to say she was a soft woman but the mayor and had a jewelry store and she helped run it and you know the miners would they said you know they would look at her based not cat collar but you know they were checking her out and she was walking down the street because she had nice jewelry and nice clothes she was not one of the things I look forward to learning more about with some future reading and research is like the militant women that fought at Blair Mountain. Mm-hmm. And Jessie was not one of those. No. Like, that she was a little highfalutin. And there's nothing wrong with being a little highfalutin. So it would make sense to me because, I mean, if you watch like the Hatfields and McCoys or period dramas from that time, there is a lot of like, um, well, like, uh, let's just say, for example, in Bridgerton, which probably was only removed from this by a few decades, a couple, like maybe a hundred years. I don't know exactly what time period that falls. Well, like. Bridgerton is, is, uh, wildly inaccurate as far I as I hate Bridgerton, kind of. but we won't talk about that. Do <laughs> you all remember when, um, the young lady is, uh, I don't remember her name, but she's pregnant and she writes to the soldier who's died and his brother shows up and offers to marry her. Mm-hmm. I think that is actually relatively culturally accurate it was about like taking responsibility for women in your life who needed taken mm-hmm. care of and I feel like Jesse falls under that category so to me yeah. I, I feel like probably Sid had a crush on her the whole time they probably maybe they had sex maybe they didn't before I don't know I don't care whatever people they knew each other yeah they knew each other and they probably had eyes for each other but you know it seems like Jesse and Mayor Testament were good to each other and then I, I would think that that's true what she said about Testerman saying, hey, you should marry Sid because he'll take care of you. Absolutely. That checks out to me. Yeah. She was used to a certain lifestyle, let's say, and he knew that Sid would be able to provide for her both in a physical sense and in a material sense. Also, the descriptions of her are real horned up in this book. <laughs> They're... Uh... <laughs> The descriptions of everyone are horned up. And then you get to the pictures, and I'm like, eh, she's kind of cute. And like, I guess. But well, I mean, you have to remember this is the 20s, and like, it's hard living. Like, There's probably very little electricity. Like, if you look at the pictures of the miners' wives, or like, I, I can't remember if this pictures at the end of the chapter we all read through or not, but pictures of miners' wives and their hair is like kind of frizzy, and it is styled in like a Victorian kind of style because this was still relatively turn of the century um but it was very clear like they it was hard living mm-hmm. yeah there's, you, I have, here's the picture of mother jones on the right yeah there. well mother jones like you can it, it's so true you know the, the fashion operates on a 30-year cycle you know and so the 30-year cycle was victorian for this in in the 20s which is really funny mm-hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. I will say, though, I think the actual cutest one among them was Ed Chambers. What a sweetie. Okay, (laughs) I I saw the pictures on my e-book or e-reader, so it was a little Ah, He had a baby face. I mean, maybe Ed Chambers was more attractive based on, like, our modern standards, at least in my point of view. If you look at that photo of Don Chafin, he literally looks like he could be a Republican. Like, he looks like a Trump voter. Oh, that jowly, like... Little piggish eyed, like some of them look so modern to me, and maybe it's because they're not Oh, <laughs> Governor Governor Morgan and Dom uh, Don Chafin literally just look like modern members modern of the House of Representatives. Yes, like, like I'm telling you, I could go out in the town where I'm at right now and find three dudes that look like Don Chafin. It's <laughs> it's forty something. It's forty something white dudes with weird hair. Like, yeah. and jowls. Yes. 
Although I have put on weight in my face, so maybe I shouldn't be talking about jowls. Anyway. Oh, shush. Listen, I think jowls are, it depends, you know? <laughs> I have a, a very, I look exactly like my mother, and we have a very square face. And the older I get, the more I look just like her, uh, much to my chagrin. But anyway. Abby, I got a head like a cinder block. I'm right there with you. It's just 90 degree angles. Like Al has a very nice shapely round face, but you and I, we do have, we do have a bit of like a. It's, it's, yeah. I always thought I looked like a circle. So that's <laughs> okay. But uh, after this, Sid became the miner's hero. He had to defend himself and Jesse's relationship. And this was when guerrilla warfare really started ensuing between the union miners and the non-union miners slash lawmen. Uh, again, like you said earlier, Abby, tent cities started popping up everywhere full of evicted minors and they were filled with like majority women and children. I believe at one point they say a tent city of 300 was about 200 children and they suffered constant raids by machine gun. Colin? At one point, um, this was earlier in the mine wars. Uh, this was just to like set a precedent for the type of violence. Uh, but a lot of the times, if, if union, uh, unionizing was even mentioned, they would just mass fire the entire community and then hire scabs from a different state. And at one point, a, uh, an armored train, which is something that we see a lot in turn-of-the-century warfare, uh, an armored train called the Bull Moose Special pulled through a camp firing machine guns from both sides indiscriminately into the camp, which was, again, almost 60, per, like 60 to 70 percent children. And very similar to the same tactics that they employed in Colorado, too. Like these mm-hmm. guys, these were repeated warfare. And I mean, I don't know what a, like genocide isn't the right word because they weren't mass killing like a specific group. But I mean, they were indiscriminately murdering minors. It was a tactic that they used frequently. This is not the first or only time. It didn't just happen at Matawan. It happened in Colorado and in other states, too. And in other industries, you know, it wasn't just coal. The railroad companies often operated very similarly. The, uh, the Battle of Homestead, where uh, the Carnegie Steel Mill workers unionized and opened fire on the Pinkertons before the Pinkertons could make land on their boat. <laughs> oh, the Pinkertons. Maybe we'll get to talking about them one day. They still exist. What? They still exist, and they do most of their work for large companies overseas, uh, usually in Asia or Africa. Because who's ever heard of American uh, corporations exploiting labor, particularly in, you know, uh, Asian uh, countries? Who's ever heard of that? What's Eric Prince's stupid new company's name? The one that's uh, doing security for the Uyghur concentration camps in China? Uh, Don't call it security. I was thinking of along the lines of like Apple and uh, what's it, Fox? Um, hmm. I'm a former Apple employee, so I'm biased. I'm, just <laughs> I'm so sorry. Yeah, me too. I don't say this out loud often, but working for Apple was part of what radicalized me because I applied for food stamps like three times when I was working there and got turned down every single time. So hmm. it'll do that to you. I worked at McDonald's. I feel it. <laughs> And remember, kids, don't break the picket line. McDonald's workers are striking right now. Mm-hmm. Oh, shit. I, I think they start on the either, uh, is it today or is it the 19th? I thought it was tomorrow. I could be wrong, though. Oh, shit. Either way, there's a strike soon. Don't break the fucking picket line. Don't be a fucking scab. 
Hells yeah. Uh, and we will talk about scabs. We're about to get into that. Um, this was also when Charlie E. Lively was installed as a labor spy by the Baldwin Feltz Agency. This little fucker. Charlie E. Lively began his time as a, uh, an incredibly active union member at this point. Uh, he opened a little restaurant. He like worked in the mine. He was took one of union wages, took union wages while also collecting checks from the Baldwin Feltz company as a spy. He ended up being undercover for about 14 months, which uh, to quote Robert Evans, uh, if you're dating someone and, and they ask you to blow up a bridge, they're from the CIA. <laughs> like, <laughs> oh, Bobby you mean Ayn Rand? but uh as all this guerrilla warfare oh go ahead abby i'm sorry no i was making fun of the fountainhead that's all as you should yeah (laughs) yeah well you know because uh the dude asks the dagny the main character whatever to blow up a building and you're like if you're significant other i should blow up a bridge anyway it's so stupid what a stupid novel (laughs) in high school i thought it was the epitome because that's the culture like i was obviously raised very conservative and religious um, and heard many terrible things said and still said in my family. But at that time when the Fountainhead and uh, Ayn Rand was introduced to me, I was like, wow. And now I'm like, that was the dumbest shit that I could have possibly been fucking reading. Like, who gave that to me? Which one is the one about the architect? That's the Fountainhead. Yeah. yeah. I read on trial. I read an excerpt of that uh, for a philosophy class. And when I fucking tell you uh, that the excerpt I read, which was like, the the philosophy professor was like, this is a, a, a good look at ideologies. And when I read it, the, the ideology at stake was, God, I'm so much better than everyone else. Their mediocrity slows me down. It's like, oh, shut the fuck up. I, I'm sure you won't be shocked, but uh, the rest of her writing doesn't get much better. God damn, dude. I've never read Ayn Rand, Ayn Rand, whatever, and I do not intend to. <laughs> she really did just make a career out of being an asshole. Like, <laughs> there's a, a uh, billboard in Nashville. No, maybe it's in, I think it's in Nashville, and it says, who is John Galt? And I'm like, man, you are, not only are you, like, LARPing as a character from an Ayn Rand novel, but you paid money to do that, and there's, like, if you don't, if you haven't read Ayn Rand, who is John Galt? Like, what that means is like a sign to like go to this secret utopia where all the like conservatives live in a commune together. Ew. Yeah, <laughs> that you like join them and you have to like go on a plane or whatever. It's like not only are you paying hundreds of dollars to LARP as a character from that novel, but it, it doesn't even exist. Like, you can't even go there because it's not real. Uh-huh. Sad, sad, pathetic. You can say no. <laughs> Who knows? Probably not. (laughs) Oh, God. And uh, as this was happening, as this guerrilla warfare was going on, we see the setup for the trial of the Battle of Matawan, where they intend to try, I believe, 23 members of the town, primarily Sid Hatfield, for the murder of these detectives. I think at one point, just the murder of Al Feltz. And (laughs) remember in recent times when they had to ship in people from other counties to serve on the jury of, was it the Derek? Was it was it the, the Derek Chauvin trial. They, they moved the, uh, the, oh, cat. <gasps> Kitty. Sitting in the floor yowling. And so I felt he would probably be quieter if I just picked him up. This is, t- he has three legs and he's like 16. Oh. I love. He's the best boy ever. 
I got completely distracted. He's so sweet. <laughs> I wasn't gonna say anything because I didn't. I didn't want to derail us more than I have. But he's uh, he's a um, a very good boy, and as you can see, he has like this ear is fucked up. So I adopted oh. him for his euthanasia day, and we've been BFFs ever since. Incredible. <laughs> I love him. Okay, I need a cat. I need a cat so bad. Rescue, rescue your pets, listeners. Rescue yep. your pets. All three of mine are rescues. My hedgehog, my cat, and my dog. So. Oh, yeah, you have an albino hedgehog, don't you? Her name is Noodle, and she's an asshole, and I love her. <laughs> she has, oh. she has, we're like in end-of-life care. She has really bad cancer, which is common in hedgehogs. It looks like she has the world's worst boob job, because she has like four <laughs> giant tumors. Um, so, but we're, oh, she's like relatively happy, and. We're mm-hmm. living it up and, um, you know, we'll make hard choices when we have to. But for now, things are fine. Yeah. My brother's rat, Stink, has a big old tumor on her butt. Stink! Stink is a sweetheart. Stink! I, I love rats. I think they're so adorable. All right. Thank you. You start crying now? Bless. Um, but uh, just as the people were trying to do with the Derek Chauvin trial these days, we saw back in this day, they were trying to ship in people from neighboring counties to serve on the jury for this trial, knowing, quote, that a jury of Mingo citizens would be reluctant to convict Sid and his friends because of the general hatred of the Baldwin Feltz detectives. And, uh, oh, no. I'll, okay. You know what? I'm going to throw it in. There is a great quote uh, from they were trying to find people for this. Getting a jury was even more difficult than predicted. Finding jurymen unrelated to any of the defendant's families, including both the Hatfields and McCoys, appeared impossible. When the name Ons Hatfield was called, a lawyer responded, he's dead, your honor, as two men named Ons Hatfield stepped forward. The jury wheel turned again and again, and deputies fanned out across the county to bring in men. Their simplicity and honesty impressed reporters, as did their uniform hatred of Baldenfeld's detectives. One thought he was showing impartiality when he announced he was neither a union man nor a Baldwin Feltz thug. <laughs> fucking iconic. I love that quote. He's like, yeah, I'm impartial. I'm not one of them fucking thugs, man. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And this is while, like, as they're shipping in trainloads of scabs, there are union sharpshooters in the hills taking pot shots at these crowds of workers from other states and staging heavily armed ambushes of not just Baldwin Feltz thugs, but of scabs working at the mines. So this is like, there's guerrilla warfare happening in the countryside while this trial is being put on. And there's also, I'm not sure if it was during the trial or, or after the trial, but um, not only are they taking shots at non-union members, but there was like a sheriff's deputy that was dragged out of his house and like beaten to death. Um, so there uh, was a lot of that. I, I feel like the the ongoing violence and guerrilla warfare was maybe somewhat sporadic, but it seemed to last over a long period of time, like during this trial and yeah, as well. Mm-hmm. The uh, that uh, that deputy was a union member who had defected from out of the union, and before he was beaten to death, his house burned down under mysterious circumstances. You hear the mysterious word thrown a lot around. <laughs> There's a lot of mysterious arson that happens in this book. Yep, I, I would say that's uh, that's the takeaway from this book: is arson can happen at any time. And you will never know why. Like, who knows why? Who knows? Who knows why the uh, the union defector, his house was burned down. Could have been anything. Maybe um, he left the stove on. I've been composting recently, and I learned that if compost heats up enough in the middle, it will spontaneously combust. So that's my running theory. For what. 
well, he was composting and it caught on fire and what the given can. that uh that plumbing wasn't common in this area yet like indoor plumbing wouldn't become common in this area for another 20 years honestly not a not something that couldn't happen like <laughs> Speaking of indoor plumbing, it's so funny. The other day I was talking to my mom, my late grandfather, who's like one of my BFFs, and we were making fun of him because I said, yeah, every time he had to go to the bathroom, he would go out to the woods. And my mom said, well, if you, you know, went to outhouses your entire life, and I never really thought about that, like, even into the mid-century, like the 50s and 60s, when he was like a young man, um, they didn't have indoor plumbing. It's It really is amazing uh, that, we, we think of ourselves, the, the, the American propaganda is that we think of ourselves as this high-tech, ultra-developed nation, when in reality, a lot of areas of this country like received indoor plumbing, something that has existed in various parts of the world for millennium, less than 100 and sometimes less than 50 years ago. My great uncle remembers when the co-op brought electricity to Wildcat Ridge, which is the area of town where I'm from. Dear God. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Jesus H. Uh, but as uh, the grill warfare is going, they're trying to set the trial. And uh, we see these transportations, which is what they call the scabs that are being brought in, coming in from other counties. And the y'all are uh, both Sid campaigned for constable while this was going on and was elected. Uh, and we saw the Yaller Dog contracts, again, as we said earlier, getting a lot more intense. As you said, Abby, they were told to remove placards, um, and they also were not allowed to, in any manner, molest, annoy, or interfere with the business, customers, or employees of the employer, and were later prevented from even entering the grounds or the mines, or approaching newcomers at the train depot, and as you said, restrained from advertising, representing, stating by word, by posted notices, or by placards displayed at any point in the state of West Virginia or elsewhere, that a strike exists in the Pond Creek field. But if a union can't even say that a strike exists, what can it do? This is, Who needs it? This is really the like most literal example of when conservatives are like, Colin Kaepernick should not have taken a knee! He took a knee! Or like when they complain about literally any kind of nonviolent protest, and then when a protester breaks a window, they shriek, but the small business, the small businesses, this is violence, nonviolent. It is just that like, you know, uh, when, when a protest is violent, they preach the gospel of Martin Luther King's nonviolence. And then when Colin Kaepernick literally only takes a knee, says nothing, just takes a knee, does a powerful, but like really very simple and nonviolent action, they, scre- they go fucking ballistic. Mm-hmm. There, it's almost like there is no right way to protest. <laughs> According to unhinged conservatives. Mm-hmm. And perhaps this is a good time to fade the audio and then we'll begin the next, we'll do the introduction again and with the trial. What do you say? Next week, the trial of Sid Hatfield. And the bullshit that followed. <laughs> <laughs>